This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. And we are also a people of the Word of God. And so we're going to turn back to uh, 1 Samuel again. We're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 19, 1 Samuel 19. And we're going to have Sonia read those verses for us while I uh, share it on the screen in the uh, English Standard Version. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at his head and covered it with the cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair and at his head, its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naioth. And it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul that 
he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Sikyu. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And let's take a moment before we dig into this to bow our heads and ask for God's help. Father God, we come to you as your children, and we come expecting that you will speak to us as you always promise to do. We are needy, we are hungry, we need to hear your voice, O oh Lord. Give us open hearts, willing hearts, responsive hearts to be affected, to be changed, to be directed by your holy and your powerful word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've ever read the Psalms, the Psalms of David, you may have asked yourself, why is this guy so obsessed with his enemies? It seems like so many of the Psalms are poetry about being threatened, um, asking God for protection, asking God for vengeance. And it's not because David was an unusually paranoid person. It's because David actually spent a good portion of his life on the run from a homicidal king. And really, David probably spent around 10 years jumping out of windows, hiding in caves, wondering if the next morning would be the one where he would be arrested, imprisoned, and executed at the order of Saul. So the formative years of David's life before he eventually comes to the throne, sorry to spoil the story for you, um, his formative years are years living on a knife's edge. And this is where David's journey of trusting God is formed. This is not someone sitting in a comfortable armchair theorizing about religion. David is someone who learns that if God doesn't protect him, he is a doomed man. And through that process of hiding and escaping and running, through all these different stratagems and ways of deliverance, David discovers that he has a God who's faithful and a God who's always going to come through for him. Because for some reason, David is a man under the favor of God. Um, in this chapter in 1 Samuel 19, Saul is becoming increasingly homicidal, increasingly murderous. In chapter 18, we see the beginnings of his jealousy against David this young warrior who is blessed with amazing success, who everyone is falling in love with, whose popularity is skyrocketing in Israel. And Saul feels threatened. He feels jealous. He feels afraid. And he is extremely paranoid and suspicious. But in that chapter, Saul is somewhat embarrassed, somewhat ashamed of his enmity against David. But when we reach this chapter, Saul is beginning to go public. He's no longer embarrassed about his hatred of David. He is ready to take this guy out, whatever it takes. At the beginning of Saul's story, when we encountered him in 1 Samuel chapter 9 or 10, I think it might have been, Saul is 
a sympathetic figure. We can't help but feel for this person who this awkward young man looking for his donkeys who's pressed onto a throne that he doesn't really desire. But Saul is becoming less and less sympathetic. It's really a tragic story of someone who began with what seemed like small sins. They were small sins that Saul did not check. He did not repent of. He did not go to God for help in. In fact, Saul feeds on this jealousy and this fear and this suspicion. He indulges in it. And that seed of sin in Saul's heart leads him to greater and greater sins. It's kind of funny in a way that Saul did not want the throne to begin with. He did not want to be king. And if you recall, he actually had to be dragged from where he was hiding among the baggage to be crowned almost against his will. And there was something attractive about that humility. But now Saul has come to a point where he cannot live without the throne. He must remain king no matter what it takes and he will remove anything or anyone who stands in his way. It all goes back to that famous dictum of Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I'm sure in your own country, you know of idealistic young politicians who ran for office and they got in and they had all these noble plans to bring good and to bring change to their country. And then over time, they got diverted from their agenda till the only thing they were concerned about was staying in office no matter what it takes. And this is Saul's situation. And he is willing to destroy David if that's what's needed for Saul to remain on the throne. What a mess this chapter is. And the shame about it all is that this is a mess among the people of God. It's one thing for the Philistines to want to kill David. Of course they would. They're the enemies of God. They're the Gentiles. They're the uncircumcised outsiders. But here this is happening among the people of God and not just any Israelite, but the leader of God's people, King Saul. And it's especially painful when we encounter this kind of thing in the church. We expect the world to oppose us, but... The church, too, has its own struggles for power, its own um, lust for control, and its own, and people who want to steamroll anyone who stands in the way of them being in charge. And in chapter 19, we have four different attempts, four failed attempts that Saul makes on David's life. We begin the chapter with Saul mistakenly confiding in his son, Jonathan. Saul has been so consumed with his suspicion of David, he hasn't really been paying attention to his own family. He doesn't know, obviously, that Jonathan has, is deeply attracted to David's personality, that he's become his fast friend, that Jonathan, in fact, the crown prince, has sworn a covenant of loyalty to David. Saul assumes that, of course, Jonathan, the crown prince, will be in with this plan, Jonathan, after all, has even more to lose than Saul does as David is rising. And so he takes his son and his servants aside and says, okay, we need to kill David. We need to take him out. But Jonathan's ultimate loyalty is not to Saul. It's to David. There is division coming in within Saul's own family. It's like Jesus would speak about hundreds of years later. 
God's anointed brings a sword among families, dividing brother from sister and parent from child. There are claims of loyalties and people must choose. And here is Saul becoming increasingly isolated from his own kids. It's not that Jonathan is disloyal to Saul. He's not plotting against his own father. In fact, Jonathan has Saul's true interests at heart. If only Saul would listen. And so when Saul threatens David, his own son-in-law, let me remind you, Jonathan takes it on himself to intervene. Look, God's put me in a position of influence. I am the crown prince. No one has King Saul's ear like I do. No one's able to approach him like I do. And therefore, I should use this influence that God's given me to do some good and to help my friend. And Jonathan respectfully approaches his father and makes a very good case for his friend David. He says, look, David hasn't sinned against you. What's going on here? In fact, David has been the agent of much good for you. Don't forget that he risked his own life. He took his life in his hands to go up against that giant Goliath that we were all so scared of. And at the time, we all rejoiced that God was using David to work salvation for Israel. And Father, you yourself were very happy about this deliverance at the time. Do you really want to kill this man and bring incredible guilt on your own head? And really, it's God himself who's warning Saul through his son. Saul's downward spiral is not inevitable. There's grace that's offered to him in this warning. And at this point, Saul still has a conscience. It's not completely seared. It's not totally hardened. And he finds himself feeling the force of what Jonathan is saying. And he's moved by Jonathan's appeal. And the impulse of that moment, he says, he swears an oath. And he says, as the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. I don't think Saul was lying to Jonathan, but it was really only a momentary impression. Saul's repentance won't last long, and soon he'll be breaking this solemn oath that he's made. Or I should say, Saul tries to break his oath. Because the funny thing is that no matter how hard Saul tries, he's actually unable to break his oath. He's going to make many, many more attempts on David's life. It's a long list, but every single one of them fails. As the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. It's like God has written his own signature underneath Saul's insincere oath. And the words of David's enemy, ironically, become the unshakable promise of God. And indeed, Saul never is able to put David to death, underwritten by the very life of the eternal God. So attempt number one is averted. Saul is diverted from his attempt to kill David. And then we move on to the second attempt. David goes off to war again versus the Philistines. He's a field commander, and as he always seems to do, David leads the troops out in battle, and he wins a resounding victory. Another fresh success for David. And yet, this very success of David 
triggers Saul's fear and jealousy. And all the old paranoia comes screaming back into his heart again. And David's not trying to provoke his father-in-law. This is just David being David. He's faithfully serving God. He's faithfully serving King Saul. In fact, David has been doing what Saul ought to be doing. Saul was chosen to fight against the Philistines, and yet he's allowing David to go in his place. So, so David is doing something good for Saul, but it makes Saul angry. You know, David is a man who's under the favor of God, and everything he touches turns to gold. But when that happens, not everybody is happy. Almost everybody is happy except the one person in Israel who has all the power, King Saul. So again, David is playing his musical instrument, trying to soothe the troubled spirit of King Saul, who's sitting there with his spear. And again, David tries to pin his son-in-law against the wall and take him out for good. But this time, David is more prepared. He knows that Saul has designs against him. He dodges the spear shaft. He bolts through the door and escapes into the night. Attempt number two is foiled through David's agility. We move on quickly to attempt number three. It turns out that this was no momentary fit of Saul that he sort of wakes up from, deeply regretful for what came over him. As soon as David escapes, Saul is sending the secret police to watch the house. Saul's daughter, Michael, who's David's wife, is in the kitchen and beyond the curtains, she sees the strange Mercedes parked outside. Who are these guys in the car? And like her brother, Jonathan, for her, loyalty to David trumps all other considerations. She deeply loves this man. And we can imagine there is a hurried conversation. David doesn't even have time to say anything to respond to her. She says, look, you need to leave now or you're going to be dead by morning. And so David sneaks out the window. He shimmies down the drain pipe and makes a run for it out of town. And there's this humorous story of Michael delaying things with this huddled shape in the bed that's supposed to be her sick husband. And then the next morning, eventually, an angry, baffled Saul discovers He's been tricked. David is long gone. And King Saul is only too ready to believe his daughter-in-law's story that David had threatened to kill her if she didn't let him go. And that story only confirms his suspicion about David's evil intentions toward his family. And notice after, by the way, after these three quick stories of these attempts on David's life, the diverse means of escape. Attempt number one, David escapes through Jonathan's diplomacy. Attempt number two, David escapes through his own artful dodging of the spear. Attempt number three, it's his wife Michael's deception that gets him out of trouble. And behind all these diverse means of escape is the providential hand of God. And God's hand has been hidden, but now it's about to become manifest. Saul finds that David has not gone, gone far. He's only two or three miles up the road in Samuel's hometown of Ramah. Samuel is the elderly prophet. He was the one who had first anointed King Saul years and years ago, and then in secret anointed David as God's chosen successor to Saul. 
And David shows up in, to this man in his retirement, and Samuel must have been deeply grieved to hear what David had to tell him. Samuel had been the one who had warned King Saul about the dangerous path he was on. And now Samuel's hearing with his own ears what Saul has been up to. And it must have been very, very disappointing for him. Samuel had once been the judge of Israel, but he's been out of power for a long time. And you'd think surely there's little, very little this old man and his little band of prophets can do to protect David, especially when Saul's palace is almost visible a few miles away. And so Saul hears about this, and he immediately sends out his agents to scoop up David. And the officers appear, and to everyone's astonishment, the officers join in the prophesying. And a frustrated, angry Saul sends team after team out to arrest David, and every single time, the same things, thing happens. The police, against their will, have this overwhelming, charismatic experience They're totally caught up in prophesying and their mission to arrest David and bring him to Saul to be executed is totally forgotten. They're messengers of evil and they're rendered powerless by the spirit of God. who was a hedge of protection around David. Saul must have been so baffled and enraged. And he says to himself, you know what? When you got to do a job like this, you just have to do it yourself. And he takes the hour to go down the road to, to take David into his own hands. But before Saul even arrives, while he's still on the road, he finds his jaw moving, and despite himself, these prophetic oracles begin to come out of his lips. It's like the old story of Balaam and his donkey beginning to speak. And then when he arrives at Naoth, where the school of the prophets is, he strips off his clothes and he prophesies totally... Um, taken captive in this ecstatic experience all day and all night. Now, for Saul, this is not a genuine experience of God that reflects some kind of deep inward change and love for God and love for David. In fact, Saul is by now a completely insensitive spiritual channel. And this story is another reminder that you can possess incredible spiritual gifts. You can, in fact, be totally overtaken by the Spirit of God and prophesy and have this ecstatic experience for 24 hours straight and not be changed at all and still be someone who opposes God and opposes his anointed. And for Saul, this overwhelming, incapacitating spiritual experience is not a blessing. It's a sign of God's judgment. This story should sound vaguely familiar if you've been with us through this series in 1 Samuel. 20 or 30 years earlier, when Samuel had first anointed the hesitant uh, donkey herder Saul, he had gone from Samuel, and at that time too, the Spirit of God had overwhelmed him, had come on him powerfully, And Saul had joined in with another prophetic band. And at that time, that was a sign of Saul being affirmed by God, being anointed and clothed and equipped for kingship. And now, at the other end of his career, the very opposite is happening. Because now, as Saul prophesies, 
he strips himself of his royal robes. The spirit makes Saul symbolically divest himself of the symbols of kingship. In our previous chapter, Jonathan, the crown prince, had done so willingly. He'd taken off his robes and his armor and gladly given them to David because he loved David and God had knit their hearts together. And now Saul does the same thing. Not gladly, not willingly, not out of love for David, but nevertheless, the Holy Spirit forces Saul to take off the robes of office so that a neighbor who is more worthy than him can reign over the people of God. So here in this um, fourth and last attempt on David's life, this fourth and last deliverance uh, of David by God, God pulls the veil back on what's really happening. Saul's obsessed, murderous quest to take David out is never going to succeed. And all the evil that comes against David, no matter what form, will be rendered impotent and powerless because the spirit of God is protecting. And the story should make us think of Jesus, of David's greater son. And like his famous ancestor, Jesus' appearance on the scene meant he made himself enemies. Not because Jesus arrived to condemn the world, he came to save the world, but his very arrival as the anointed one of God provoked the serpent and the serpent seed to fury. They have always, down through the centuries, ever since the garden, waged war against the woman and her seed and tried to exterminate them and to crush out any hint of the promise of God coming to pass. And when Jesus arrives, Satan and his army are determined that he will not succeed. Jesus arrived on a mission of love, but his very goodness threatened people who wanted to destroy him. And here in our passage, of course, we find that David is repeatedly helped to escape by his loyal followers, by his friends who love him so much, by his friend Jonathan, by his wife Michael, by the old prophet Samuel. But that actually stands in contrast to the story of Jesus. Jesus, when we read in the Gospels, he's not sneaking out of windows, he's not hiding in fields or um, immersed in some cave. Jesus willingly gives himself up to the officers who come to arrest him. And he does so in order to save the faithless followers who desert him in his hour of need, who deny him and run away from him. And not only that, Jesus, as the true king, as the anointed one of God, has actually come to die for the enemies who hate him. And while they nail him to the cross, Jesus is pleading with his father that they be forgiven. The love of God is greater than hatred. And evil itself will be rendered powerless at the cross. And of course, as Jesus tells us, we disciples are not above our master. And he summons us to follow him on the way of the cross. 
And simply by following Jesus, by being faithful to God's true king, means that we are going to have enemies. Not because we're rude and because we're jerks and we're trying to attack and insult people, but just because we're being faithful to Jesus and we're, being, we're bearing witness to him. And of course, discipleship means there will be many times when we have to choose between our craving to be liked, our craving to have the approval of other people and their friendship, and our commitment to Jesus and the praise that comes from God. And just by loving people, just by doing good, just by seeking to live out the kingdom of Jesus, there are going to be people who are threatened by that. And they will try to undermine God's people. They will try to marginalize them. They will even try to destroy them. And of course, we need to remember that is the experience of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world every day, living in fear of their enemies who are also the enemies of Jesus. But like David, we have these words over us, this oath of the enemy. That's also the promise of God. As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. The way of the cross leads into the grave and the path of disciples were never promised. That's going to be an easy path a path to instant success, but it's a path that goes through death, but does not end there because the stone has been rolled away. And as we follow Jesus in his suffering on path to the cross, we also get to share in his path to glory. I want to finish this by going back to the book of Psalms. It's very interesting comparing the Psalms of David to these, these actual experiences in his life. And I want to turn to Psalm 59, which is about this very incident, this very chapter. Let me share it on my screen with you. Just a few verses. So there's this um, inscription at the top for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy of David, a miktam, whatever that was. Um, and the event is when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And at that time, David writes, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. And then moving to the end of the psalm. He writes, but I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love. For you are, my, you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I rely. And today we remember that by following Jesus, we have enemies, enemies that we may not even be aware of. Certainly, we have the serpent who is always out to destroy the people of God, to lead them into death and destruction, to sever us from the love of God. And God's promise is that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. He's always surrounding us, protecting us, and caring for us. And let's pray now that God would give us the grace in times of danger and distress, 
um, to go on faithfully serving Jesus, fighting for the cause of the true king. Shall we pray? Father God, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that by his death, we have been won over from enemies to friends. And if he died for us while we were enemies, how much more now that we are reconciled to him, shall we be saved by his life? We pray, O Lord, that you would protect us from all evil that comes against us. There are forces that we have no idea, forces that are powerful, that are malevolent, and that could destroy us in a moment. And we thank you that you have delivered us from their clutches time and time again. Most of those times were times of which we were not even aware. We thank you that in your hands, we are safe. We pray, O Lord, that you would continue to deliver us from the evil one. And Lord, we ask also that you would help us to be faithful followers of Jesus. Make our ultimate loyalty to him and to him alone. And may we find ourselves sharing not only in his uh, journey to the cross and into the grave, but also out of the grave. And may we experience his resurrection life as we go on this week in his service. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.